Mm. I love challenging questions. <laughs> no, it's, it, 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 I, I meant it seriously that I love challenging questions because this is, these are the types that make us go deep into truth. So his question was, you know, on the banks of Gunga, I had said, it doesn't matter how you envision God, what your country or culture or language may be. And he's asked about homosexuality in Hinduism and how it's taken, how it's perceived, and that, that aspect. So we've got theory. And we've got practice. And when you have practice, you have prejudice. And this is true of any society, any group of people, anywhere. Any religion that we look at will have beautiful tenets. And then we look at how those tenets are being put into practice. And what we end up with, in many cases, is prejudice. So, in Hinduism, there is, of course, a, an openness to everyone. The, the sheer number of passages in the scriptures that talk about, over and over and over again, the divinity of all, with no exception at all. Race, religion, sexual orientation, doesn't matter. The divinity in all. The fact that every single being on earth, everything on earth, is pervaded by the divine. And that too equally. It's not like, well, these are pervaded by the divine this much. These are pervaded by the divine that much. They're very pervaded, slightly pervaded. Nothing like that. Over and over again, we're told, God lives within us. And then, of course, we end up in a society with what I'm going to call societal ills or societal evils. And whether it's a caste system or whether it's discrimination against homosexuality, it is absolutely undeniably present in society. The caste issue is actually getting better and better as time goes on. I wish I could say the same thing about homosexuality. I couldn't say it honestly. And it's very tragic. The only way that in my own mind, in my own quest for truth and balance, in a world that I have adopted as my own, that has touched me in ways that are indescribable, and yet that really does have such an issue with something that to me feels like such an, a societal evil and ill. The only way on a personal level I've been able to rectify this in my own mind is through an awareness of the fact that in the Hindu tradition, the entire purpose of life, the reason that we're born, is to realize experientially our oneness with God. That's the whole reason we're born. 
has nothing to do with what our job is going to be, how much money we're going to make. The purpose of human birth is to get closer to God. Closer and closer and closer, ultimately we have that final union. Moksha, samadhi, liberation, whatever we call it. In which we no longer are accruing karma, we become one with God. Okay. In line with that as a fundamental principle, the whole purpose is to go beyond the calls of the body. Hinduism is a culture in which people fast not because they don't have enough to eat, but as a spiritual practice. They stay awake, chanting and meditating all night long. They do intense austerities. When Puja Swamiji was in the jungle studying under his master, he had to stand on one leg for 11 hours a day. It's a practice. There's a whole host of practices that we go through. Not quite as severe, of course, as what his guru put him through, but as part of our spiritual discipline. Why? To remind us, I'm not this body. The body is screaming for food. I'm not giving it to it. And what that does in the mind is makes us understand that there actually is an I that is neither the physical call of the body where my stomach is grumbling, nor is it the emotions that say, oh my God, if I don't eat, I'm not going to be able to think clearly. If I can't think clearly, then I'm going to make the wrong decision, and therefore I really, really should just have a sandwich right here and now. If I can witness without judgment, so I'm not against my body, I'm not against my emotions, if I can witness without judgment, but not give in to either of these, then I have an experience of the I that's neither the body, nor the identification, nor the emotions. And that's a very, very deep and profound spiritual experience. And I share all of this with you because sex, even heterosexual married sex, is considered something that is for the purpose of propagation of the species. Now I'm going to take a little side detour here, just because I want to make sure that no, because if I don't do it, it's definitely in some of your minds, and so we'll just take care of it right here so we can all come back which is the issue of the Kama Sutra. Because what always comes up is, well, if the whole purpose of heterosexual sex is for the propagation of the species, then why do you have a sutra on it? What Hinduism says is that everything we do in life should be a way of getting closer to God. And there's a lot of things we do. We eat. We sleep, we propagate, and so many other things. There are sutras for almost every aspect of our life. 
what we should eat when, how we should eat, how the food should be prepared, how we sleep, how we rise, and therefore, naturally, how we engage in sexual relations. If you're going to do it, well then let it also be a path to God. So that's the Kama Sutra bit. Now we come back to the point. Even heterosexual sex between married people is seen as a way of propagating. If a married heterosexual couple in their 40s or 50s or later went to a religious leader and said, God, you know, we really love having sex and we have sex 20, 30 times a day. We have it on the kitchen table. We have it in every room of the house. We have it. That religious leader would say, you people need to stop this. This is not what your life is about. All you're doing is getting pleasure out of it, of the body. That's not what you were put here for. You have children. Your children are grown. That work is done. Now all you're doing is enjoying yourself through the pleasures that this body can give you, and that's not why you were put here. Stop it. The, the whole way that the cycle of our life in Hinduism goes is first we study, then we have our family life, then we move away from the family life into what's called Vanprastashram after we've fulfilled our duties of the family. Ultimately, we move into a time of sannyas. So you're dealing with a culture where at its very fundamental tenets, is anti-sex for enjoyment anyway. When you've got something like homosexuality, what it looks like is sex for enjoyment. We're not making babies. We're not propagating the species. We're not giving birth to the next enlightened leader of the people. Therefore, all it is is giving into the call of the flesh. And in my personal way of making peace with this, that's the way that I understand it, is that it's not against homosexuality per se, but that it's against simply sex for enjoyment as a, as a practice anyway. And that that's where the root of the discrimination comes in. Now, of course, I know as a society, India has a long way to go. But if we take it in the way that I've just explained it, it stings a little less, and it enables us to understand where the, the practice of the discrimination may have started and the fundamental base for that. And then, of course, you've just got general human ignorance, which you've got all over the world, and that just perpetuates it.
So how do we go toward God and unite with God if we don't believe in God? Um, or if we have doubts about God, can we still be on this path? We were speaking last night, actually, about a very, very related topic. But I think what's, what's most important is when we speak about uniting, remember that God is in everything. Any real union that you have is a union with God. Whatever you love, as Pooja Swamiji has just been speaking so, so beautifully about love and connection, whatever you love, whether it's a romantic love, whether it's love for a, a parent, love for a child, love for a, a sibling, a friend, love for a pet, anything that you love the actual being inside, rather than just the packaging. If you're actually loving the person within, what you're loving is the divine. The packaging keeps changing. The cells of our skin are regenerating every few days. Our organs every seven or eight years. Within a very short period of time, if you love someone, there's not one cell of that person that was there when you first fell in love with them. So the question is, well, so exactly who is it you love? Well, it's not the body. I mean, certainly you appreciate the body also. It's certainly nice to have a hand to hold. But it's the essence in the body. It's the spirit in the body, the being in the body. And that essence is the divine. Because as we were speaking earlier about the drops in the ocean. So if what you're really loving is the essence of that drop, what you're loving is ocean. Whatever clothes it's wearing, wherever it might be on its path, what you're loving is ocean. And in the same way, the easiest way to connect with God, to have that experience of uniting, if you're not on a, you know, quote-unquote traditional spiritual path or a religious path that has God involved, don't worry. Just really love something or someone mm -hmm. and what you will find is what you're loving is God because that's the only thing that is the unchanging essence that's the only thing that even when that person is not physically in front of you but you're still connected well what are you connected to? If you can't see that person, hear them, touch them, feel them, but you still feel full of love when you think about them. Well, so what are you connecting to? What's just made you feel all warm and tingly inside?
inside if they're in another room or hundreds of miles away. Or they've passed away. What is that? Well, that's the essence of who they are. <coughs> which is the soul. Which is God. So don't worry. What you call it, how you think about it, you believe, you don't believe, doesn't matter. Love is the best path. And if we really, really, really love, God is right there. So she's asked one of the core practices in the Hindu tradition is the cremation of bodies. And there are places like Varanasi in which that's the, the sheer number of bodies that are being cremated on a daily basis is phenomenal. And so she's asking about, you know, as the water level gets more and more polluted, what's the future relationship and interaction between the performance of our religious duties and the care for our water? Wonderful. So... this of theory and a piece of practice and I'm going to give you both because we're actually doing a lot of specific work let me begin with it in theory and then we'll move into the practice when we speak about lowercase t truth and capital T truth that's I was saying it referring to us here but it's also really true about the truth that is given to us in our religious backgrounds. There are many tenets, principles, that are timeless and eternal. The world is a family. Everything in the universe is pervaded by God. Love thy neighbor as thyself. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I mean, these are, these are the sorts of really universal tenets. I've taken them specifically out of different religious texts. But the sorts of universal principles that no time, no place, no experience would render obsolete or incorrect. And then we have aspects which were very true at a particular time and place, at a particular type of world, with a particular type of society. And these are what tend to be our practices. 
And of course, society has practices as well, but we'll talk just about religious practices. Otherwise, we'll spend all night just on this. So religion has certain practices. And one of them, as you've raised, is the practice in Hinduism of cremation. There's many reasons behind it. The reasons actually are very beautiful. A, you're not lose, taking up space in the ground. B, you're not creating a place where people come to connect with you because the belief is that I'm not in this body. And so when you bury the body, it creates a sense for all of the loved ones that if they can just go there and put flowers on the grave, that that's actually where I am. And inherent and very deeply embedded in this tradition is the distinction between the soul and the body and how it's only the body that's died. And so the idea of creating a place where people would go and put flowers on the body is something that is not in line with the religion. And the idea that we are made of the five elements we go back to the five elements. Ash is one of the greatest fertilizers. So we have really done the job of nature. I mean, eventually a body would decompose anyway. But rather than waiting for nature to do its work, we've helped it along and have given it this ash to serve in the soil. So there's a lot of reasons why it actually was a beneficial practice for a long time, why the tenets have been held so deeply. But then you come into a situation in which the water's polluted. There's too many people. Trees are being cut down. The sheer amount of wood required to burn a body is A, more than most poor people can afford, B, certainly more than the forests can afford, and so we're now in a situation of saying, well, how can we adapt? And we are adapting. And one of the things that's actually happening under Pooja Swamiji's guidance and leadership and inspiration is a push for what's called a green crematorium. Because we, of course, have electric crematoriums, but the sensibilities of people are that un until and unless it's done with the wood, in the proper way, with the family members, putting the ghee onto it, putting the camphor onto it, watching it burn, that, that, that sense of final rites having been done according to tradition isn't really there to just stick them on you know a gurney and that or in a casket and that gets pushed into a big metal thing and then someone flips the switch it, it it doesn't have within it that sanctity that so many are are wanting and so a technology has been developed which under Pooja Swamiji we've been working to get not just implemented in an official way but something to get public support for and public demand for, which is a green crematorium where it's still wood, 
but it's about a sixth of the amount of wood that's needed in a regular cremation. So you don't end up in a situation where poor people are pushing half-burned bodies back into Ganga because they just didn't have the money to buy enough wood to burn it completely. And we're not deforesting our forests so much. There's, it, it's a technology in which the wood is done in a certain way and the pyre is made in a certain way and how that fire is made stronger and hotter such that the cremation is done faster and with much less wood. So there's a push for that. There's a push amongst the religious leaders for burial rather than what's called gel samadhi, which is because they don't they don't burn saints anyway. And so with the saints what they do is they actually put the body as is into the river. And so Pooja Swamiji's been working with the whole saint community to actually end that practice and to bury the saints um, in proper ways. So the work is on, and I have full faith that as long as we have visionary leaders who are not stuck with the letter of the law, but rather understand the spirit of the law and are able to take that and adapt it into the current situation, that we absolutely will be able to address this. What is the soul? Is it really unchanging, eternal? Or is it just another way of us, you know, tooting our own horns and getting more attached to just another level of myself? I love my clothes, I love my hair, I love my eyes, and I love my soul. <laughs> yet, yet another thing that I can, you know. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> There's, there's two aspects of the soul when we discuss it. One of them is the individual soul, and the other is the supreme soul. And the, there's no very, very clear way of explaining it, but the, the best way that I have found is the concept of the ocean. So we have an ocean. And just imagine for a moment that the ocean were infinite. So we're going to call that the supreme soul. Unchanging. And as I said, it's not a perfect analogy. The ocean, of course, changes. But it's the, the biggest, fullest thing we have that we can all picture. So we have the ocean. That's our supreme soul. Sun shines on it, water evaporates. Those evaporated particles of water go into a cloud. The wind carries that cloud. Pressure causes some of the drops from that cloud to fall in different places. This is what in our lives we would call karma the cycle of rebirth, 
That's what's pulled us out of the ocean. That's what's determined where the cloud has carried us. That's where it has determined when we fall out of the cloud. So the process is the same for everyone. But each molecule of water is being carried to a slightly different place, being dropped at a slightly different velocity. It's therefore going to end in a slightly different place. But each of those molecules is ocean, right? Came from the ocean. It's going back to the ocean. That's what gravity is. It's carrying it all back to the ocean. As I said, on the banks of Ganga, the source of water is the ocean. It's going to keep going there. Every single body of water is moving toward the ocean. Some more quickly, some more slowly. They're all moving. That drop falls. That's what we're going to call our individual soul. That individual soul now, based on where it has fallen, gets a body. The body could be the pristine Himalayan waterfalls. And that water flows down in Mother Ganga. And when people see it, they pray to it. They worship it. They drink it like nectar. They perform ceremonies to it. And it identifies as that, and therefore develops what we would call an ego. Look at that. I'm so pure, I'm perfect, I'm beautiful. People pray to me. People perform my arati. They drink me for liberation. But actually, that drop is ocean. <clears throat> Another drop falls in the sewage. People plug their nose, sweep it away, walk on the other side of the street. That drop also identifies with that. Oh, I'm so bad, I'm ugly. I'm dirty, I'm smelly. But ultimately, that is also ocean. And the purpose of each of their lives, you could say, is to get back to the ocean. Whatever they may be covered with, whatever path they may go on, ultimately, it's to get back to the ocean. Now, once that drop merges back with the ocean, there is no drop anymore. There's only a drop until and unless it merges back with the ocean. So, our individual soul is taking these bodies, these incarnations. Now, this all really is not perfect because on one level it actually hasn't gone anywhere and there never was evaporation and there never was a cloud and everything is actually just ocean. So that's, if, we, you know, if, if you're listening to a radio or you're watching TV and you've got this channel turner, 
Well, all the channels are happening. They're all real. It just depends on which level you're looking. In this case, the channels are going deeper and deeper. On the deepest level, there were no drops. There was no evaporation. There are no clouds. There was no wind. There is nothing but ocean. But that's a really, really hard concept to wrap our brains around. And the problem with it is that when we don't really fully understand it, it lends itself to a lot of complacency. I'm already God. What's the point? It lends itself to ego. I'm already God. I'm divine. Worship me. It lends itself to what we call a beautiful term coined by a wonderful meditation teacher in America, the term spiritual bypass, where we have a spiritual experience of the ocean of the fact that there is nothing but ocean. And in the illusion that we are now done, because we are ocean, we don't bother to look at or address or deal with that which we're wrapped in, which for most of us is ignorance and anger and our identities and our expectations and our desires and our fears and our jealousies and all of that, we don't look at that. And this is where you get all of the, the difficulties of those on spiritual paths that we're witness to so frequently. So that actually is the fundamental truth. There's only one soul. It's never gone anywhere. It's never done anything. But on a, on a level that is also true, just we've turned the channel, slightly less deep, slightly less capital T true, but at least something we can wrap our heads around, is the metaphor of the drops that we're all in our own way the ocean the core of who we are the essence of who we are that soul is the divine but we take our births we keep coming back through this cycle of karma of reincarnation until we actually merge with the ocean so it would be like if that drop of water, instead of relying on gravity, landed into a car. And that car took it for as long as the car could take it. And then the car broke down. And so now our drop needed a new car. And it got a new car, and then the new car took it a little bit farther along the way. And then that car broke down. And it kept getting newer and newer cars until it actually reached the ocean. So that's what we talk about with coming back. 
until we've actually merged. And now there's no saying that you have to get lots of cars. This is, this is the power of grace. This is the power of awakening. And this is what all of the, all of the enlightened ones, all of the saints and the sages and the rishis have told us is it's available right here, right now. There's nothing you have to become or do or memorize and then give back. All you have to do is awaken to it. <coughs> and the minute you do, the drop merges with the ocean. And even still in a body, that soul is one.